standing and turn to the book of John, gospel, John's Gospel, chapter 17. We want to read the first five verses. John 17. Thank you guys for singing and leading us this morning. And uh, we're, we're grateful as well for to have our violinist back. She had a good excuse to be away. She was providing me another uh, grandson. And uh, so we'll give her that uh, excuse. And, uh, but it's lovely to hear her join the musicians again this morning. These are God's words for us. Beginning at verse 1 of John 17 and reading down through verse 5. And here's what God says this morning. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. There is no word like your word. Every word of yours is true, eternally true, powerfully true. And so help us, Father, by the very Spirit who moved John to write these words down. Now, Move these words into our hearts and change us, for we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When Jesus had spoken these words, we're still in that what we call upper room conversation that Jesus has had with his closest followers. That conversation began in chapter 13, and in a sense it ended at chapter 16. And when he has said these things, these were words of encouragement, words of instruction in light of his impending arrest and crucifixion and death and burial. His focus was on giving good care and encouragement and instruction to his disciples. And, and so when he, has, when he had finished saying these words, he, he then has a, a very intimate conversation with his father. And, 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 yet, and yet his closest followers are invited into eavesdrop in that uh, intimate conversation with his father. We get the eavesdrop on this beautiful conversation. We get to peer into things that were going on in eternity past. We are being privileged to catch something of the heart of Jesus and the heart of his Father. And, and so while he, when he finished saying these words, that, that, in, that, in, that encompasses all of chapters 13 through 16, and yet, and yet, Lay your eyes on what the last thing he said was at the end of chapter 16. When he had finished saying these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. What, it was, what were these last words? 
But take heart. I have overcome the world. Having said that, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and began to have a conversation with his father within earshot of his disciples so that you and I might know a bit of this conversation that is going on. And so all of chapter 17 is a prayer. We're going to plan to slice up this prayer. Even that sounds weird, slicing up a prayer. But we'll just get through it a little bit at a time. This morning we'll get through the first segment, uh, the first five verses, the first uh, five verses of this prayer. And the focus of this first movement in Jesus' prayer is, well, it's primarily about himself. And then the second movement, which is in verse 6 through, I think over there in about verse 19, it'll primarily be about his people. And then, and then in verses 20 through the end of the chapter, it'll primarily be about the world. And, and yet having said that, all of these themes will, will be interspersed throughout each of these uh, parts that we're going to uh, break apart for a little bit and, and take a look at for the next couple of weeks. Two things I want to say this morning, though, from verses 1 through 5. And the first thing I want to say is really found in verse 1 and then again in verse 5. Really the the two kind of our bookends of what's going on here in this first segment. I want us to notice the essence of this prayer that Jesus is offering. That's verses 1 and 5. And then I want us to look at a bit of the explanation, the, the, the fuller essence of this prayer in verses 2 and 3 and a part of verse, verse 4. What's the essence of this prayer? What's the chief thing, if you would, the main thing, the main focus of what Jesus is praying for? Well, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. And do you see the request? Glorify your Son. And, and, and then he even alludes to that again in verse 5. And, and, and now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence. Now, on the one hand, uh, the, 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 the glorification of Jesus is, contains a whole range of, of historical events and situations. And, and, and yet, when, when he says here, the hour has come, uh, we are at ground zero in the moment of the glorification of God. Jesus, in essence, is praying in light of the hour that has come. Jesus knows, put me, Father, at center stage. Put me, Father, in the shining spotlight of all of history. Father, my prayer is that you would show me in all of my beauty and goodness and truth in greatness. Father, my prayer is that I would be seen in all of my truth and all of my goodness and all of my beauty and all of my greatness. The hour has come for me to shine like I've never shined before. So, Father, shine upon me and shine through me. What hour are we talking about? Well, we are on the eve of the cross. Before he ever began this conversation in chapter 13 with his disciples in this upper room, he said something very similar 
in chapter 12. Listen to what he says in verses 23 to 24. The hour has come. Do you see the similarity? Chapter 12, verses 23 through 24. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But, but if it fall, falls to the earth and dies, it bears much fruit. What is this hour for the Son of Man to be glorified? What is this hour that has come that Jesus is now requesting that, that he be glorified? It is the hour of his death. It is the hour of the cross. It is the hour of his crucifixion. You see, the the cross is what will display the fullest measure of the glory of God that will ever be shown, shown, displayed in the history of the universe. The cross of Christ shows the truthfulness of God, shows the goodness of God, shows the beauty of God, shows the greatness of God like nothing else quite does. Now the irony here, the irony here is that in that day and age, there was nothing more horrific or disgusting or ugly or horrible than a crucifixion. In Rome, the cross was a symbol of horror. It was a sign of curse. It was an emblem of weakness. It was a display of foolishness. And yet, that's what Rome thought. God thought altogether something different than that. God had a whole other set of categories and concepts that he was working with when he ordained the cross in time and space and history. At the cross of Christ, God shows the seriousness and the strength of His redeeming love and grace. Yes, the cross shows the depth of our sin. It took Son of God blood for you and I to be atoned of our sin and to be cleansed. But as sure as the cross shows the depth of sin, it it shows the even greater depth of God's rescuing love. No, 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 no. In a sense, to back up here, Jesus' whole life was that of revealing the glory of God. In, in John 1, the same book, John 1, when, uh, speaking of the arrival of Jesus, it says, and we beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. In other words, when, when Jesus showed up, God's glory was being seen and shown. 
His first miracle at the wedding feast of Cana, when he turned the water into wine, it says there that was to show his glory. That was through the wonderful things he did displayed his glory. The capstone of that was in John 11 when when he raised Lazarus from the dead. We're told there in verse 4 and in verse 40 that that was about displaying the glory of God. But, 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 we haven't seen nothing of the glory of God yet. Yet from that perspective, I mean, we've seen it now. It's already put on display in time and space and history. When Jesus hung on the cross, that was the day that he overcame the world. Yes, there is something immensely tragic about the innocent son of God shedding, shedding his blood. And yet, it is a day of triumph. Yes, there is a gloominess to that Friday, but there is a glory about that Friday for those who have the eyes to see what's really going on here. Jesus, at his own cross, slays his enemies by his own death. Now, that's not a game plan none of us would draw up. I mean, how do you, how do you achieve victory? That's simple. You achieve victory by triumphing, by, by overcoming I can't say that word, but by overcoming your enemies, by crushing your enemies, or so we think. God overcame his enemies by permitting his enemies to crush him. What the enemies of God, what the world thought was a day of humiliation for the Son of God became the day of greatest triumph for the Son of God. And his prayer, far from being a self-absorbed prayer, glorify me, Father. His his prayer is that through his humiliating death, there would be the triumph that would display the beauty and the greatness and the glory of God like nothing else has ever quite done. It's not a self-absorbed prayer, but but a sacrificial prayer. Prayer of a sacrificial life, not a self-absorbed life, an obedient life, a self-denying life, an others-directed life. At the moment of his greatest display of love, at the moment of what appears to be his greatest defeat and, and a most acute humiliation, is actually at that same moment, a day of victory. His prayer is that his people would see that. 
Do you see Jesus as beautiful and glorious and true and good in and through his sacrificial, obedient, self-denying, others-rescuing death upon the cross? Do you see Jesus as glorious? In other words, Jesus is praying here, Father, put me in center stage with what we're about to do here. Father, shine the spotlight of history right here, right now with what's going on here. How does that work itself out in my experience, in your experience, in our lives? Is Jesus the center of our everything? Not, 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 not just on Sundays while we gather for a bit and sing and do a couple of other things, but is he the center of our lives every day, all day? And not just an empty concept. On the one hand, that's a, that's a, that could be a lofty, oh yeah, Jesus is the center of my everything. Well, if he's the center of our everything, then it's to him we go. It's to him we depend. It's to him we submit. It's to him we surrender. It's to him we follow. It's to him we look, for, look to for wisdom. It's to him we look to for direction. It, it is every day and all day since we see him as beautiful. Satisfying, captivating. And we see that in full display as we grasp what in the world just happened by the Son of Man dying on the cross. I'll tell you what happened. Something happened that was out of this world. Beautiful. He says there in verse 4, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus' whole track record was one of, of giving glory to God through his own life of obedience. And now the capstone of that life of obedience will be seen in how he will glorify the Father uh, through the obedience of even laying down his life. So he prays, glorify me. Glorify me so that you would be glorified. You know, there's a passage over in the book of Romans, chapter 3. Many of you probably heard it coming and going before, but I want to connect it to this conversation. It says in Romans 3, 23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Think about why a holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would want to create anything outside of themselves. Think about, on a more personal note, why you're here and what you're here for on this earth. We were made for a grand purpose. We were made by a triune God. We were made to, to live in harmony and, 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 and in relationship with, with this God and with all else that he made. And it would have been glorious 
He made us. And, and as we would live in this world that he made for us, we would uh, love him and trust him and obey him and worship him. And we would, and as we do, as we would have done that, we would have seen the goodness of our Creator and, and, and all of its multifaceted beauty, not only in Himself, but in and through all that He made. Our joy, our weighty, substantive joy, would have been found in Him. And yet, in Adam, we struck out on a different path than we were made for. A different path that we thought would be more glorious. A path of self-glory, if you would. In which we would attempt to find our own identity. To find our own life. To find our own happiness in some other way, shape, form, or facet other than in the triune God who made us to be happy in Him. And before we gang up on Adam and Eve and stockpile on them, just think about how this we're tempted to work this out in our own lives. Our own attempts of self-glory and, and self-focus and self-identity and self-defining and self-assertion. Think of the ways that we, unbeknownst perhaps at times, because it just comes so natively, we... We live to make a name for ourselves. We go to our jobs because our jobs is about making a name for ourselves. We go to our schools and we, or we stay home, whatever. But we, we go to school and, and we amass us a, a whole sling of uh, initials after our name and get us an education to make a name for ourselves. Not that there's anything wrong with either working or getting an education with a whole bunch of initials at the end of your name. All, all of those can be wonderful if they are done for the original purpose that we were. And my, the problem is not those things. The problem is how we hijack those things. Just think of even a simple thing. Why did you just post that on Facebook? Was it another example of self-glory? That your position is righter than my position. That your situation is better than my situation. That your photos are cuter than my photos. Do you see how simple and quick and fast and easy it is to live about our own selves? Where does that come from? It's as old as Adam. We've inherited it from him Guess what we forfeit? We forfeit the, the, the living out of the overflow of the love that has existed for all eternity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we think we're going to mark out a better path in our defiance and in our rebellion. Do you see why the cross is so beautiful? Because the cross is about seeking out and rescuing people like us who would otherwise be glory thieves. 
Second thing I want to say briefly is a bit of the explanation to the prayer, and that's the middle part of verses 1 through 5. The glorification of the Son is manifested and gives rise to the eternal life of His people. That's the quick and skinny of verses 2 and 3. This is so incredible. He says there, picking up in mid-sentence in verse 2, talking about glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh. Now, let me just stop there for a second. Since you have given. That's a past tense thing. In other words, I, I, I would suggest to you that what Jesus is doing is He's reminding the Father of some conversation that they've had in the past. I would suggest to you that it was eternity past. Long before you were a glimmer in anybody's eyes, the Father and the Son were already up to something, having conversations. And in that, in that conversation, a plan was hatched. A plan was ordained, if you would, for Jesus to come and save or rescue a people. And to accomplish such a plan, all authority, the Father would grant all authority to Jesus. Do you see where we're at now? He says, so since you have given him all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Uh, Verse 2 is a... it, it's, a, it's heavy lifting, it's heady, but when it lands on our hearts, it's not just a heady thing, it is a, it is a haplifying thing. Jesus, about to go to the cross, he is going to the cross, ha- having been granted all authority over all flesh. The last thing Jesus was at the cross was a victim. In full control of all things, he offers up his life to his father. He he lays down his life to, to rescue glory thieves. And in rescuing glory thieves, he accentuates and highlights the glory of his father and the glory of himself. So that on the other side of this cross, what we read in Matthew 28, verses 16 and following, Jesus post-resurrection now declares all authority has been given to me on heaven in heaven and on earth. And what does Jesus do with that authority? This is, oh, reality is so counterintuitive to, to history. If I gave you some power today, it's not mine to give. I ain't got any of my own self. But if I was to give you some power today, because that's, that's really what our world wants. Our world hungers for power. There's one group of people who think they got power and want to use it wrongly for other people. There's a whole other group of people who think they ain't got no power, and they want that other person's power. So why? So they could do to you what the same thing they think's been done to them. In other words, everybody's hungry for power, and they're going to use that power to, uh, to promote themselves and to fortify their own positions. Jesus, who's been given all authority, all power is within his hands, uses that power to lay down his life, to provide eternal life. Yeah. You get that? No one would draw up this plan. If I was to say, hey, come over here in a minute. We're going we're gonna to hatch a scheme for, for eternal redemption of humanity. We would say, well, 
man, I got to come out looking good here, don't you think? Yeah, well, both of us, we'll work it out. We'll both come looking good. But that's, that's not what Jesus does with this power. He, Jesus has been granted power from his Father, and that authority granted to him from his Father is such that he could secure the eternal redemption of the people, it says here, of the people that the Father has given to him. That's a mouth-stopping reality right there. Do you see the, the incredible leverage of power for redemptive purposes at the cross? At the cross, Jesus is securing the redemption of the Father's people. Ain't nothing, ain't no one going to thwart that or stand in the way of that. John pictures this another way in the book of Revelation. It's the same John and the same spirit that moved John to write this and moved him to write the book of Revelation. This is how, this is how this, the, those whom the Father has given to him is portrayed in the book of Revelation. It, it, it's the, the names are written down in a book. And we're told in, in Revelation 13 that that book uh, was published before the foundation of the world. And that book is entitled, well, the book of Revelation phrases it a couple of ways. It's in essence, it's the same, same thing. It, it, in Revelation 21, it ca- just calls it Lamb's Book of Life. And in Revelation 13, it calls it the Book of Life of the Lamb. Not much difference, but it, it's the Lamb's Book. It's the book that the Father has given to the Son and says, here, here, what you're about to go do by showing up on earth and living a perfect life and dying as a perfect sacrifice, all the names that that's going to redeem is found right here in this book. And then he specifies what he's talking about concerning this eternal life in verse 3. And this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus, whom you have sent. Do you see, do you see what the center of eternal life consists of here in this passage? It's, it certainly is eternal, but, but the emphasis is not on eternal, meaning just an unlimited duration of time. No, the beauty of this eternal life is that it is being brought into an, a, a close, intimate knowledge and relationship with the everlasting God. We make much of forgiveness uh, in the Christian experience, and rightly so, because we come into this equation with sin that has separated us from a holy God that has brought about a just condemnation over us. And so sin is a, is a true significant issue. It's a hurdle, if you would, for the great scandal of the Bible is not how could a loving God send anyone to hell. The great scandal of the Bible, if you know the Bible's categories, is how would a holy loving God allow any sinners into his pure presence? And of course, that answer gets accomplished by the 
beauty and the glory of the cross. At the cross, God displays not only the depth of his love, but the heights of his commitment to justice. And certainly how that plays out is a hurdle that must be dealt with so that people like you and I could live in relationship with Creator God is our sins must be dealt with, and Jesus handles that easily. But that is a means to an end. Yes, Christians are forgiven, but Christians are forgiven so that we could be brought into an intimate, abiding, loving, enjoying relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That the the very conversation that Jesus is having with his Father about things concerning eternity past, we are being brought privy into that conversation at this moment because we are being being informed that, that, that our redemption our salvation, our rescue entails not just we no longer have sins to deal with, but it, it shows how our sins have been dealt with, that we might be joined into the triune Godhead, that the very love percolating around within the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we've been brought up in the middle of that. We now live in the love of God because of the death of Jesus. Do you see how glorious the cross is? Do you see that in eternity past, the Father said, I got a group of people that I'm going to send you on a rescue mission to seek out and to find and to lay your life down for. And Jesus said, I'm in. And Jesus comes down, puts his boots on the ground, or sandals, I know, but I like the term boots, but puts his sandals on the ground lives a perfect life, dies as a perfect sacrifice. God raises him from the dead and every single name in that book has been rescued. Yeah. Of course, the question that we got to end with is, oh my gosh, how do I know my name's in that book? How do I know if I, I was a part of that group that the Father gave to the Son that the Son laid his life down for? That's, that's, that's an importantly, important question this morning. And I'll let Jesus answer that question. How do you know? John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. Jesus has done a work to bring his people to his Father so that his people might be pardoned, so that his people might be adopted into the family of God, so that his people might be brought up into relationship with the Godhead. And all who turned to Jesus will in no way be turned aside. All who seek Jesus will find him, because all who seek Jesus are in fact already percolating by the Spirit of God with a heart to want to know Jesus to follow him. We love God because he first loved us. He was seeking 
us out and finding us when we didn't even realize we needed a seeking out or a finding. And he accomplished everything he needed to accomplish through his death on the cross. That's why we see the cross as a triumph. As the triumph of the beauty of God in the display of redemption and love and grace. Father, thank you for the cross of Christ. Thank you for all of the truth and the goodness and the beauty and the glory that it fully displays in the rescue of sinners like us. So, Father, we thank you for this word. We pray now this week we would live in the truth of the cross, that we would see you in light of the cross, that we would see ourselves in light of the cross because we've seen Jesus at the cross. And may Christ be the one that we cling to this week, even as we know that he will lose none of his own. And so we stand and sing and we rejoice in Christ's name.